0: for swordplay. Alex, fact-checking website Snopes has recently come under fire for fact-checking stories from the satirical news outlet The Babylon Bee.
1: (laughs) What? What's next, Nick? Is Snopes going to start fact-checking Avengers
0: movies? (laughs) I sure hope so. The Avengers got the rules of time travel all messed up. That's what I've been
1: saying. Come on.
0: This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am uh, Nick Perez, Preaching Minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this very special episode of Swordplay, the end of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. That's right. We're
1: going to dig into prophetic language. In fact, this is very important prophetic language because of its fulfillment in Acts chapter 2. So you might as well consider this podcast Joel 2 plus Acts 2. And we're going to see if we can piece this thing together. And Nick, I want to start us off with verse 28. We're just covering these five verses, 28 through 32. Now, it starts out, it will come about after this that I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind. What does after this refer to? That is, you know, what precedes the promise of the
0: Spirit. Um, So my English standard says it shall come to pass afterward. A little different, but kind of the same thing. Uh, It's a very general phrase as regards the time element of this prophecy. Uh, Chronologically, it is somewhat nonspecific. And so it would be sometime after the nation had recovered from the National, economic, and military crisis, which the Babylonians had brought with their exile of the people. Uh, that's, that's what I see here, and in, in, as far as the after this, what say you? Okay, I think the time frame
1: is actually pretty specific, um, especially if you're reading the Septuagint. If you remember last time, we noted how verse 27 in the Septuagint says, My people will never be put to shame unto the age. That little phrase, unto the age, is missing from the Masoretic text. And that last phrase is key. What age were they looking for? The Messianic age, of course. Especially by the time Jesus shows up. You know, Messianic expectations were extremely high then. And it seems that people had many of these verses in mind already. They were looking for them to be fulfilled. To the extent that Peter could quote Joel chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost and know that they understood his point. So what does... After this, referred to? From my perspective, just to recap, it refers to a time after which they make their choice on whether to repent or not. From my perspective, again, this is different from Nick's, but chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, was the hand, um, it was the at hand fate of demonic warfare destruction. And verses 12 through 27 was the relenting God would show uh, should they have. Uh, should they, should they repent? And what would be the, the purpose? Well, the audience, since I take a post-exile or exile time period, uh, the author, the audience, they already know what actually happened. They chose not to repent, and so they can't blame God. They can't blame any kind of predestination or fatalistic reason either. It was their choice. To repent or not and so they could have prevented the destruction so the after this then refers to after their choice was made whichever choice they would have made god would either way bring in a time where he pours out his spirit so after this refers to the previous age that makes way for the messianic age the messianic age could have been met with a utopian like or dystopian like state of israel and history shows us the latter any thoughts there nick
0: uh, no, I think we've uh, parsed that quite well.
1: Just kind of like a review from last time. Oh, and by the way, uh, <laughs> just to be crystal clear, I am not a dispensationalist. <laughs> just to make that clear, well, I don't. Could have fooled me. <laughs> <I don't, laughs> come on, yeah. I do not hold that the promise of restoration scene in verses 12 through 27 is something still possible for Israel today I do not hold that I believe that that promise was a window available only to Israel before Babylonian destruction and since Babylonian destruction came they didn't repent that promise uh, was contingent upon that repentance and so that promise can never be fulfilled it was contingent it was a possibility but there's a different promise after this where he's going to pour out the spirit that is going to come, and whether that's met by an Israel ready to receive it or not, it's coming. So let's keep unfolding this then, because Peter says in Acts 2.17, when he's quoting Joel 2.28, he says, in the last days, these things will happen. So he doesn't actually say after this. He says he replaces it with the phrase, in the last days. Now, Nick, why do you think Peter does that?
0: Uh I'm going to call Holy Spirit Apostolic Interpretive Privilege on this one. <laughs> oh, the H-S-A-I-P card, there, huh? There you go, the H-S-A-I-P. The um, <clears throat> that's actually one of the few differences, there are a few differences in Peter's quotation of Joel 2 in Acts chapter 2. And this one is a pretty substantial one. Right, right. Um, as it... Uh, falls from the original after this versus in the last days. Um, There is actually, I found, a single Sahidic manuscript in the Codex Ephraimai family which retains after this. It doesn't say in uh, the last days. It says, it has Peter saying after this. Interesting. It's probably an overzealous scribe there trying to retain that Joel reading. But uh, at any rate, Peter... Uh, he not only uses the phrase in the last days in Acts 2, he also uses that phrase in another one of his works, Second Peter 3 and verse yes. 3. Right. And, and that phrase is used throughout the New Testament as a designation that a new age, the Messianic age, has arrived. And so it may at this point... Um, also point to the destruction of jerusalem uh, when peter quotes it on the day of pentecost we're less than four decades out from that and uh, there's also some connective tissue to some stuff jesus says which i think we'll talk about later i'll talk about later um, in regards to the signs and all that but suffice it to say here um, it's probably some again that apostolic interpretive privilege that we see sometimes happen under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. My take. You say? Wait, Nick. Destruction of Jerusalem less than four decades out. You
1: mean like within their generation or lifetime? Yep. Like some would still be alive when when they see it coming. Yeah. Interesting.
0: Kind of like Mark (laughs) 9-1.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Well, um, you might be right. Holy Spirit, apostolic, interpretive privilege, perhaps. Also, Peter could have been working off of another manuscript that we don't have anymore. You know, there were other manuscripts that existed that we have yet to recover or maybe we will never recover, and that's pretty obvious when you read things written in the Second Temple era, like Josephus, where he obviously knows about stuff that isn't in our Bible. He's got some other uh, manuscript tradition that he's has access to, but either way it doesn't um, necessarily require the Holy Spirit interpretation, although Peter had that too, so it obviously could have been Um, but you don't have to have that to know that after this is referring to the last days of the Mosaic Covenant and the preparation of the New Age, the Messianic Age Um, and the reason is that consider Peter's audience, you know, Peter's audience is, is yet to have that holy spirit and yet they they understood um that peter what he is saying so peter expects the audience on pentecost to understand his connection so when he says last days he like, doesn't expect them to be like what what are you talking about peter right. what last day <laughs> right and so they get it they know the expectation is there and so that's that's the subtext that we have to remember um So after this, last days, yeah, I think they kind of knew that that was the same thing, especially if they're going off the Septuagint, which they likely were reading from. Because verse 27, you know, my people will not be put to shame unto the age. So there's this changing of ages coming along. Uh, Verse 28 again, though, Nick, we got lots of questions here. Mm -hmm. It says the Spirit is poured out on all mankind. Uh, how exactly does that work? How is the Spirit poured out on all mankind? I mean, isn't it just for Israel? I mean, is it the whole world that gets the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and Acts 2? What happens?
0: Yeah, first blush seems to indicate, I mean, all flesh, right? That would seem to indicate the the universality of this. Um, but we, you could parse this down to where the text does specify that my Spirit is poured out on my male and my female servants, slaves. Um, And so it could be understood this is upon all God's people, the your, 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 your sons, your daughters, your old men, your young men. uh, That likewise indicates that this could be focused on all Israel. Zion is the locus of the salvific focus, if you will, uh, when it (laughs) comes to, you find that later on in verse 32, Zion and Jerusalem and all that. Nevertheless, the universality of salvation certainly is seen in the word "everyone" uh, down in verse thirty-two. Everyone who calls the name of the Lord, um, and uh, so that seems to indicate it would have. It, this would be uh, indeed upon all uh, people. It would just start with Israel. Sounds vaguely familiar to something I think I read about the Jew first and then the Greek. Anyway, um, yeah, so. Uh, A couple ways of of looking at it, and you say I'm especially impressed when
1: you rhyme your answers together. (laughs) The locus of salvific folk. I mean, come on, you can't make this stuff up. This is gold. That's right. This is gold, people. Come on. So I think this. uh, There's definitely a connection there between. Okay, yeah, this is Israel. You make really good points there, Um, and yet he still says all humanity. And so, what would be the theological message there? I'm gonna. throw you you a bone here. Here's what I think it means. I think this harkens back to the imagery we already saw in chapter 1 and earlier in chapter 2. You know, Israel was supposed to be God's new garden. It was supposed to be God's new humanity. But that garden was burned to the ground, just like the first garden eventually got washed away in the flood. But through the Messiah, Jesus Christ... All who are baptized in the Christ Jesus are now sons of God, a new humanity, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. And they're heirs of the promise of Abraham. They're a new creation. They are true Israelites. That's all in Galatians 3.26 and following in chapter 6, verse 16. The new humanity through Jesus is the true israel of god so yes god pours his spirit out upon all mankind which is the new mankind created through baptismal regeneration activated by faith in the messiah and yes god pours out his spirit upon israel because the true israel is the new humanity they are one in the same does that make sense yeah I right all right <laughs> Any <laughs> any thoughts there nick no, I think that's, uh, that's a good connection. Well, one has, next question, when has the Spirit ever given, no, was the Spirit ever given to mankind to any extent before this promise, right? You got the promise, going to be poured out, but what about before this? What's the activity of the Spirit?
0: Uh, so the Old Testament is rife with examples of the Holy Spirit of God coming upon an individual, usually with ecstatic and sometimes unusual results. Uh, the, the prime case for me is King Saul. In 1 Samuel 10 and verse 6, he is told that the Spirit would come upon him, he would prophesy, and I love this last part, and he would be changed into another man. Wow. <laughs> so the, the transformative effect of the Holy Spirit of God, even seen in the Old Testament, Right? And yeah. I know we typically don't think that way as New Testament Christians. All new hold the Holy Spirit and the transformative effects of the Spirit. That's only for New Testament stuff. Well, not so fast. Yeah. <laughs> uh so, so that's one example. There are several more. Um and uh are you I think you're gonna give us at least uh one, right? Yeah, I'll give you at least
1: one and uh, I like your example. Um many have seen the Holy Spirit as what was breathed into Adam in Genesis 2-7 when Mm. God made Adam and that breath of life is what was lost when he sinned but it is restored completely through Jesus Christ Um, and it would make sense that you would see some measure of that restoration given to certain people in Israel since they were supposed to be the new humanity you can see this motif of the breath of the Holy Spirit and uh, that being what makes you the true Man that God created in his image, that motif is all through John's gospel, actually, which starts out like a new Genesis in the beginning. Jesus' miracles in John are always brought about through faith in his word, and words of life are breathed by the life giving logos in human flesh. And this goes into what's happening in John chapter 20, verse 22, when Jesus breathed on the apostles and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Again, it's communicating all through John that. Jesus is creating this new humanity. So after Adam and Eve, you do see the Spirit, but you see the spirit given in some lesser measure. it's not actually breathed into them. Uh, the spirit um, is is given to the prophets, but prophesying is not widespread. you know the spirit doesn't dwell. Uh, permanently in anyone. I think Saul loses the spirit later on, gets replaced with a demon. <laughs> um, right. But the spirit does dwell with them, but not in them, um, at least not permanently. The, he dwells in the tabernacle. He dwells in the temple. But the pouring out of the spirit on all of the new humanity, that would signal something to the Israelites. It would signal The globalization of God's kingdom, the globalization of his presence, and the globalization and restoration of Eden. Which, by the way, is what we're still working on. It's not Eden yet, and I'm not a post-millennialist, but I'm just saying the Great Commission is part of the process of the globalization of God's kingdom and his presence. Because if we're the temple and the spirit dwells in us, then how is God's presence going to be made, dwelt upon the entire earth? It's through the Great Commission. It's through the making of disciples of all nations. And so just some themes there that you kind of tie Acts and John and Genesis back into Joel and the soup of their worldview that we're sort of uh, floating through. (laughs) Any thoughts (laughs) there? Any questions there, Nick? No, good connections. All right. So what connections do you see, Nick, between the pouring out of the Spirit and what was mentioned just earlier in Chapter 2 about the pouring out of the rains
0: yeah. So the the spirit is often described metaphorically as water. Uh, in fact, uh, this is uh, seen, and the, the connection between rain and the spirit is seen pretty clearly in Isaiah 44 and verse four. I will, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And so, um, that connection is is there. It's uh, in the in the Old Testament, and so this poured out language, I think, is appropriate for the Spirit um, being. I mean, I think he, of of Jesus talking about the the rivers of living water. That's he's talking about the Spirit in John seven, as well. So uh, that that for me is the connection. What say you?
1: Yeah, I think one could even see the shadow of uh, type that is created by the promise of the rains so had the Israelites repented before Babylon shows up we see that God would have poured out the waters of the sky by the way the word for sky is the same word for heaven by the way so you could say waters from heaven or waters from the sky Uh, he would have poured that out upon the land and they would have reaped an abundant harvest that was so great it would have made up for all the years lost to the locust plague Well, that didn't happen because they didn't repent in time. However, the reality of that shadow promise, the anti-type, it did happen, but with one catch. It happened for all those who repented. (laughs) Acts 2, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You know, it was upon repentance that God pours out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, through water, no less, in baptism. And... As a result, reaps a spiritual harvest, which begins the world's longest and greatest war campaign, the conquest of the kingdom of heaven. Mm. And it's no wonder Jesus says, look, the fields are white for harvest. So just like they had to repent to get that physical rain for the harvest, uh, they have to repent still to get that spiritual Holy Spirit for the harvest of, uh, of mankind. What do you think, Nick? Nick?
0: Good stuff. Good no, stuff. All right, all right. Um, so we're still in verse 28, and it talks about your sons, your daughters, shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Is there a difference, Alex, between the prophesying dreams and visions that occur before and after the Spirit is poured out? You know, Nick, um, in a sense, no,
1: there's not a real difference per se in concerning the prophesying dreams and visions, except for the fact that the main difference seems to be in the extent and frequency to which they saw these things happening. You know, there was a lot. There were a lot of disciples who all at once on the day of Pentecost were speaking fluently in other languages. <laughs> that was after the Spirit fell upon them. And sure, in the Old Testament, men and women prophesy. They dream prophetic dreams. They have visions, yes. But after the Spirit is poured out... This type of interaction between God and man would skyrocket without partiality for those in Christ, both male and female, free or slave, old or young. And as we know, the Apostle Paul would add Jew or Gentile. But that's a given, since this is the new humanity we're talking about here. Based off of what we see in the book of Acts, the epistles of the New Testament, these kinds of spiritual gifts, uh, prophesying and whatnot, They seem common. They seem widespread throughout the churches. Now, the follow-up question is, why don't we see or hear about such widespread supernatural interaction of the same kind today? And that question would lead us into a whole other conversation, which we'll have to save for another podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, this question reminds me, uh, so not this last May, but the May before, Uh, during the Pepperdine Bible lectures. They call it Harbor now. They had Brian Zond out, um, and he's written books uh, Farewell to Mars, Water to Wine. He preaches for a pretty large uh, church in um, St. Louis, I think. His keynote, and you can find it on YouTube, his keynote is about these three dreams that he had, and he basically, like, preaches his dreams. And um, he quotes this uh, this verse here, uh, Acts 2 as well, as, uh, as, he, as he starts to talk about your old men shall dream dreams. And so he kind of puts himself in that role. And so it's, it was a trip. But anyway, that re- <laughs> it reminded me of this question. Yeah, I'm yeah.
1: Well, and I can see how different reactions, you know, people would have to to this guy's story, right? Like some people might say, well, you know, that that's maybe it's true. Maybe he did have that thing. Um even then, if if it's true, which uh you know, I'm not calling this guy a liar. I I think it probably is true. But even then, the key difference here between um before Pentecost and after Pentecost, especially in that, you know, first century or two of Christianity is the extent and the pervasiveness to which you see it. And so, I mean, this is the first time I've heard of a guy in in our you know tradition of the Church of Christ saying something like that.
0: Well, admittedly, he is from um, what's it like uh, Word of Life Church or something like oh, that, okay. if I remember it. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so he's he was invited, but anyway. Sure. Sure. He the, in one dream he meets Carl Bart. One dream he meets Mother Teresa. One dream he meets um, Abraham. I think it's crazy. Anyway, <laughs> it's wild. Okay, I'm starting to believe him less and less now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. Well, Nick, what significance do you think there is to the spirit coming upon both male and female slaves in verse 29?
0: So we got to remember that in their day, old wealthy men ran the show. Hmm. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> but now, <laughs> but now by the spirit. Those social distinctions, they don't matter when it comes to the reception of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Everyone has access, regardless of uh, their gender, regardless of their socioeconomic status. Um, Pictured here is that new age with a new social structure wrought by the Spirit of God. Uh, so I think that's the significance. What do you think?
1: I think that's right. You know, it's this new social structure in the spiritual realm that has its effect on the earthly realm. I believe you noted in our podcast on Philemon that it was the principles of the New Testament and New Testament Christianity built upon first the Old Testament that laid the way for what would eventually abolish slavery. Obviously right. not overnight. God gives us time to change. But even today, where evil and sin abound, you will still find slavery. Even today, even in modern America, both spiritually and physically. You know, I'm talking about the uh, human trafficking problem that's a global, worldwide, here and Ooh. in other nations. Right. But we see that the Spirit, like you said, it is given without partiality to those in Christ Jesus. Refer back again to Galatians 3, 26 through 29. And naturally, I think, with the spreading of the kingdom of God and the making of disciples, what should follow is true freedom. And um, that is that is the heart of the answer to the problem of evil in the world. We have to keep spreading the gospel. We have to keep making disciples. Any thoughts, Nick?
0: No, I think good good update, too, uh, for our day and age. Um, so that brings us to verse 29. All right. <laughs> I made out of verse twenty-eight, <laughs> verse twenty-nine. Even on the male servants and female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit. In those days, Alex, does "in those days" imply a singular event, an ongoing event, or does it imply both? You know, Nick, I would say
1: both. There were big events, as it were, first for the Jew on Pentecost in Acts chapter two, and then for the Gentiles starting with Cornelius' household in Acts chapter 10, where we see a large outpouring of the Spirit that is attributed to be the fulfillment of the prophecy, going back here to Joel, going back to John the Baptist, and to Jesus. These big events, I think, inaugurated what would be the normal ongoing event of people receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, the inauguration was big. It was flashy. Tongues of fire are coming down. People could see it. But the normative events that follow are not so much as flashy. Yet nonetheless, still creative and restorative to the soul. So yes, in those days, I think refers to the days of the Messianic Age. And again, the follow-up question then is, uh, well, to what extent is is this pouring out going to happen? Well, in reference to the prophesying and the things of that nature, it seems that there was an explosion at the beginning during the inauguration. And it seems that it does slowly wane over time. But the regeneration part, the regeneration of the soul by the spirit, I think that continues in full force. What do you think?
0: Waning over time. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> Just with,
1: uh, it, I don't know, you look through, I, I'm still learning, but you look through the, the writings of the earliest Christians after the New Testament and you still see a lot of these things happening, speaking in tongues, prophesying, that kind of thing. But it seems less frequent. It seems less normative. But, you know, that's, that's another debate and podcast for another time. I'm not saying I'm a full-on cessationist,
0: <laughs> if you're familiar with that term. <clears throat> but I am saying basically, vision. yeah. Basically, the cessationist says that that the visions, the dreams, the prophecy, um, any kind of uh, supernatural type of events, um, those disappeared. Those went away with the death of the last person upon which apostolic hands had been laid. Re First um, Corinthians thirteen, right there in the heart of that chapter. What well, I'm not slowly over time,
1: and I'm not. I'm not saying that I'm full-on cessationist cuz I, I think I think demonic exorcism I think that continued on. What? But <laughs> but um I think there also were less and less demons as time continued on. I mean, demons are not infinite in number and, and I think as Christians abound, demons uh go away. And there's I think they're still here, but I think whether they are Concentrated in one area or spread out kind of depends on how we're doing, what, if we're doing our job or not. If the Christian is sacred space, demons can't occupy sacred space. So, anyway. Okay, so,
0: so slowly wanes <laughs> over time. Yes. But it doesn't go. You're, you're not saying it goes away. Okay. Exactly. Yep. Okay. I can try.
1: All right. Nick, now we have in verse 29, mm-hmm. something that Peter adds. So, Joel does not to, add 29, to or take away. Oh, it says. <laughs> Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And then Peter adds after that, and they shall prophesy. Right. So why does Peter add, and they shall prophesy, concerning the spirit upon the slaves?
0: So Peter slips several items into his quotation of this text. Um, He slips an indeed in, or my English standard says even, at the beginning of verse 18. He also slips in an up and a down, or above and below um, talking about the heavens above and the earth below. Um, none of he also has an extra "my" in there. My male servants and my female servants. Um, the there's only one "my" in the Septuagint. None of these are big deals, but and they will prophesy. That's kind of a big deal, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It corresponds to the prophecy. They shall prophesy in verse 17. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. That's that's a connection I think that we're supposed to make. And the the repetition then seems to indicate uh, emphasis emphasis on the prophetic nature of the Spirit. And that's the way the Spirit is portrayed in Luke and Acts, volume one and volume two of Luke's work. He is the Spirit of prophecy. You can see, for example, Luke 4, verses 18 and 19, where Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, how the Spirit would come upon him, and one of the primary purposes for the Spirit being upon our Lord was proclamation, proclaiming liberty to the captive and and things like that. So spirit of prophecy, that's a substantial thing. And so the repetition here under inspiration of the Holy Spirit for Peter to, to include that I think is intended to communicate. That primary role, or at least one of the primary roles, of the Spirit in the New Testament church. And you say?
1: Uh, I agree. Also, again, though, Peter could have been working with a different manuscript or manuscript tradition that we don't have, and that's fine. The idea, as you said, is there's going to be a pervasive amount of prophesying by all types of people in this new age of the Messiah. Prophesying would be the gift to be sought after most of all, out of all gifts, according to the Apostle Paul in First Corinthians 14. 1. And I think that makes sense when you're launching the kingdom of God to go global. You don't have established bases of schools yet. You need to empower the unschooled to speak the truth without error. And uh, again, I'm I'm not full cessationist, but I'm also not... Oh yes, we have prophets today speaking without error it's like no i don't think so (laughs) so there's there's a space in between that i think is um a good medium to occupy so emphasis there's gonna be a lot of prophecy going on especially right at the beginning when that's inauguration of the pouring out of the spirit any thoughts there any follow-up thoughts nick
0: well interestingly i just pulled out my Uh, Greek apparatus here, and there are, eh, I don't know, a handful of manuscripts that omit that second, and they will prophesy, but for the most part, our Greek manuscripts, just about all of them have it, so. for that Acts 2 passage? Yes, the Acts 2. Gotcha, gotcha.
1: Okay, Nick, verse 30. We're moving along. Here we are. Here we go. Third verse. (laughs) It says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth. Blood, fire, and columns of smoke. Okay. What are wonders
0: in the sky and on the earth? So I think this, uh, as we come back to the Joel text here, I think this is where um, we'll probably have the most significant uh, distinction between your view and my view. Right. There might be some overlap as well. But anyway, um, so here's here's my take. And I said this in the previous episode. Um, uh my, I, I don't think we should be looking for a literal word-for-word word fulfillment of these phrases. I I take this as highly figurative prophetic language, which is intended to communicate that the world as they knew it was coming undone. It was the world as they knew it was coming to an end. And so in this case, these uh, the cosmic events language, wonders in the sky, on the earth, and all that, uh, this is typical prophetic language for uh, the day of the Lord. Um, Isaiah 34 and verse 4 has a similar phrasing, if I can get there. That's what you get here, folks, on this podcast, live research on air. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Riveting. In ho- Yeah, Isaiah 34, for Ages. all the host of heaven shall rot away. <laughs> And the skies roll up like a skull, uh, scroll, the, all their hosts shall fall. That's, again, that kind of cosmic language I think is stock prophetic language for uh, it's the end of the world as we know it, right? And a little R.E.M. for you. Um, but anyway, you say? One-minute sermon? Uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay, I'm going to have to disagree here. Well, um, you don't as have you said, to, but... Well, <laughs> I do. Yeah. Cosmic language... It did communicate a lot of things. And it wasn't just the end of the world that it communicated. I think the main thing is to see these prophetic, figurative verses through the worldview of those who wrote them and read them. When God says, I will display wonders, it means something to them. The term wonders can be defined as signs or omens or portents or marvels. These are all things that you see with your eyes. But what exactly would they expect to see is dependent upon their worldview. So let's just note for now that the translator saying in the sky is actually an interpretive move. The word for sky and heaven are the same word, both in Hebrew and in Greek. I would argue that the verse here should read, I will display wonders in the heavens, because it is a plural word there that's translated sky, it is plural, in the heavens in the earth. This would tip the reader off to their worldview, the idea of as it is in heaven, so on earth, in other words, when big things happen in the earthly realm, it corresponds to big things happening in the heavenly realm. So that's where I'm tracking as we move on into the next, you know, few questions here. So Nick, verse 30 then, what do you think one would expect to see in the wonder of blood, fire, and smoke.
0: Again, uh, through the interpretive framework of a highly figurative prophetic text, the language here is intended to signal God coming near. um, And 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 this is judgment language, I think, as well. Uh, But the fire and the smoke, I think, probably recall the pillars for day and night respectively night and day i guess fire at night smoke by day uh blood a little tricky um but again sticking with the kind of exodus theme there um probably in we're probably intended to recall god's judgment on egypt with the first plague the plague of blood turning all the water to blood so um i think again uh figures for judgment. That's that's the idea for me. And you say?
1: Okay. So from my perspective again, what would they expect to see with blood, fire, and smoke? You know, there's only one other place in the entire Bible where we see blood, fire, and smoke all mentioned together. Numbers chapter 18 verse 17. And that's a passage about sacrifice. Fire and smoke, they often do appear together in other passages. But it's the blood element that gives away what this would be hinting at. It's hinting at sacrifice. In the Levitical sacrificial system, animals are bled. They are burned on the altar and turned into smoke that would rise up to heaven as a sacrifice. But in the Messianic age, we are the temples for the Holy Spirit. We are the living sacrifices for worship to God. So what happened when Jesus came and disciples were being made throughout the first century? We know what happened. Persecution happened. Jesus said it would happen. In fact, Revelation chapter 6 has the Christian martyrs under the altar of heaven asking for God to avenge them and asking how much longer until the blood which they have shed on earth will be avenged. And the answer, until the number of their fellow servants and brethren to be killed were complete. Blood and fire and smoke is the language of sacrifice sacrifices of god's people dying for god's kingdom in the first century and i believe this is the wonder or the marvel that would be seen on earth nick
0: still here (laughs) all right
1: (laughs) well what do you think in the next part then what would one expect to see in the wonder of the sun turned to darkness and the moon to blood
0: yeah, so now we've, we've uh, bled into, as it were, verse 31. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, again, as before, still, still going to stick with that uh, highly figurative prophetic language interpretive uh, move here, which I think we're intended to, to see here that uh, in this language, the great luminary bodies of the sky, the sun and the moon, they refuse to shine. And so again, it, it communicates this idea that the normal created order is being undone. And like before, again, the world as they knew it, coming to an end. But it would certainly usher in a new era uh, for them. So uh, my take, and you say? So I
1: don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not disagreeing that this isn't highly prophetic, figurative language. I do think it is highly figurative, prophetic language. I'm just disagreeing on what we think the original audience would have interpreted it to be then. Because whether it's prophetic, figurative language, or literal language, it doesn't matter. It still would have resulted in something that they would have expected. And so what I'm disagreeing with is what they would have expected, from your view to my view. Now, the sun turned to darkness and the moon to blood. First of all, there are no other verses that speak of the moon turning to blood anywhere in the entire Bible other than this verse here in Joel and when Peter quotes it in Acts 2 the only other place you get the moon turning to blood is in one of the uh, Old Testament pseudepigrapha books called the Testament of Moses, chapter 10, verse 5, if you have your uh, Old Testament pseudepigrapha. And that's where Moses speaks about the end of the world. Now remember, as in heaven, so on earth. What would accompany the sacrifice of Christians on earth? What would be the mirror to the earthly reality? Battle in the heavenly realms. I think that's the mirror. Remember, the sun and the moon and the stars, those are stock words, that stock language for spiritual beings which ruled over the nations ever since the Tower of Babel. Go back to Deuteronomy four, nineteen through twenty one, Deuteronomy thirty two, seven through nine. The moon turning to blood, that isn't just judgment language against these other gods. It's the language of their death. Now remember God decided that he was going to judge and kill the gods who ruled over the other nations in Psalm 82 he says even though you are gods sons of God all of you yet you will die like men like any prince you will fall so first here's how I see this unfolding you know Jesus' death on the cross it strips those rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms of their right to rule the nations get that from Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 and 15 and then his disciples make more disciples of all those nations. And that's spiritual warfare. That's the battling that is mirrored on heaven and earth. And then, when the end comes, at the resurrection, the other gods will die. Like prophesied in Psalm 82 and in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, "...the elements will be destroyed with fire." That word for elements we talked in our podcast on 2 Peter 3, it's stoicheon, and that is a word for elemental spirits. The battle for God's kingdom on earth was begun by the blood of martyrs on earth. That's the marvel of fire, of blood, fire, and smoke on earth. And it was mirrored by the dethroning of the gods in heaven, this spiritual battle and warfare. This continues today i believe and will continue until the resurrection that was a long diatribe
0: <laughs> i don't right, any, so, any chance for any thoughts there nick so end of the world like moses says in testament of moses got it <laughs> <laughs> um, i mentioned other verses <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're still in uh, verse 31 here. talks about the sun and the moon, but no stars, which uh, the stars had been mentioned earlier back in verse 10. So what's going on here, Alex? Why are the stars not mentioned like they were before? My best
1: guess is probably because they've already been removed. So this is what they're looking for, right? They're not looking for the stars literally in the sky to disappear. They would have been looking for something in the heavenly realms that was happening and thus reflected in the earthly realm. And so I think that the stars are not mentioned here, is because by the time this stuff unfolds, those stars have already been removed. And I think that references the stripping of the rulers and authorities of the heavenly places, uh, which once held rule over the nations. They were stripped and imprisoned by Jesus through the work of the cross. That's why I think the stars aren't there. <laughs> And that moves us to verse 31. It does. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, verse 31. Uh, these things will happen before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Did these wonders then, did they happen, and when did they happen?
0: Uh, so, yeah, I, I think these uh, original Jewish readers, uh, and then also later the, the Pentecost crowds, I think they understood the, the prophetic and poetic language, of uh, this prophecy when they heard it and so they got that these events would not literally happen but they understood that nevertheless yahweh was coming and he would turn the world upside down the world as they knew it would be turned upside down so um <clears throat> so i think yeah uh and especially given acts 2 i mean yeah this some the the Uh, what was predicted here did come to pass. It was fulfilled as, uh, as Peter says. So uh, what do you think?
1: I think these events began on Pentecost and that's the key word. They began on Pentecost and they continue today. And so I think you're right. The audience, uh, whatever you and I think the audience knew, they understood their own view. They understood Peter's words. They understood their own cosmic worldview. And so I agree. They, they, didn't, they knew it wouldn't literally be the sun, moon, and stars that would be doing things in the sky, although that stuff happened sometimes, and it meant something sometimes, but they also knew what those words meant concerning the heavenly realms, concerning spiritual beings, concerning the state of the cosmos, as it were. So, yeah, these events, they began on Pentecost, uh, and they continue today. That's what the Great Commission is all about. And I think it's going to continue until the resurrection. In other words, um, the wonders of Christian martyrs, the spreading of God's kingdom, and battle in the heavenly places until all things have been made a footstool for God's feet. And that's, uh, we see that in Corinthians and in Hebrews, that we do not yet see all things having been made a footstool for God's feet, but they are being made a footstool. That's what the battle language is. That's the, that's the language of, of kingdom-spreading language and conquering. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Nick, again, mm. verse 31 then. Right. We know the day of the Lord can be different things. What day of Yahweh is being referenced in this verse, and did this day
0: happen? So what's interesting is typically the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, is Judgment. And you have the images here of doom, which is the blood, fire, signs, and all the rest that we've been talking about. Um, this is an impressive coming uh, when when Yahweh shows up. At the same time, though, uh, what's interesting is this is also a day of salvation. It's a day of the presence of God's Spirit. Right. And so which is it? Is it judgment or is it salvation? Well, it could be both. And Right. Uh, Or it could be, it's understood that um, the day of Yahweh, on that day, he comes to deal with people. And it's as simple as that. Both his people and those who are not his people. For some, this is going to be a good thing. Deliverance, right? and uh, Escape, salvation, all that. For others, though, it's not so good. It'll be a day of disaster. It'll be a a day of calamity for them. So... um, and did this happen? Well, I mean, you think about uh, Pentecost, and Peter says, hey, this is fulfilled. This is that. And so, yeah, it was. For some, it was at least 3,000. It was a day of salvation and deliverance from their sins. For others and those who continue to reject uh, the gospel message, it's it's a day of disaster. It's calamity. It's terrible uh, because they have rejected and spurned the offer of God. So. Uh, that's what I think. And you say? Well, I think that since these things happen before the
1: day of Yahweh, I would say the great and awesome day of Yahweh being referenced here is the end of the world it, and it is the resurrection. Um, this day has not yet happened, although lesser days have happened. Whenever God visits judgment upon a nation, it is the day of Yahweh. Um, but the great and awesome day of Yahweh here, uh, I think this happens after the blood. Uh, the moon gets turned to blood and, and the sun gets darkened which i.e. all the spiritual rebels have been taken care of uh, the kingdom of, of God has been spread the gospel has been disseminated there are disciples of all nations and God's going to pull the trigger on that he's going to decide when that is enough because Second uh, Peter 3 again he's being patient waiting because he wants all to come to repentance not that all will but he wants more people to call on his name. So, Nick, what? Do Speaking you f- of calling, on yeah, his name. exactly. What do you think it means then, verse thirty-two, to call on the name of the Lord? What is that? Uh,
0: yeah, so it's it's interesting here because you have at the beginning of verse thirty-two people calling on his name, and yet at the end of verse thirty-two, it's Yahweh who's doing the calling. And I, I don't think we should forget that Yahweh calls those whom He saves. And it's somewhat of a, of a theological paradox here. The, there's tension, and this is characteristic throughout the Bible, the tension between um, human moral responsibility, calling our responsibility calling the name of the Lord, and divine sovereignty. Uh, he's the one who calls. He calls, we call, we call, he calls. So um, I think for them, it, uh, especially in terms of um, uh, exile and all that, I think it looks different. Uh, than what Peter calls his audience to, um, but um, uh, for those in exile, it would have been a call of repentance um, in terms of uh, prayer, calling on the name of the Lord. I think is is that's typical language for that elsewhere. But then in and we'll we'll talk about this in uh, the next question. But what did it look like for those in Peter's day? Well, we'll talk about that then. But anyway, right, right. Uh, That's original audience. I think it had to do with repentance. And you say?
1: I think you're right. This phrase is full of Old Testament theology, which we have hinted at before in other podcasts. But essentially, calling on the name of the Lord is actually a state of fidelity that you enter into. When one's allegiance belongs to Yahweh, then you are calling upon him. And so I don't think that's even a singular act. It may have a beginning, but it's even a continual state. Of faithfulness, and I think that what that looks like, as you said, is different depending upon uh, what age we're looking at, what covenant we're looking at, and either either way, whatever time or people we're looking at, this allegiance, it is always uh, stated and acted upon. and so acts two thirty seven then Peter he does quote this, he says, to call in the name of the Lord. But how did Peter tell the people in front of him to call on the name of the Lord?
0: Yeah, so verse 21, he quotes that part of verse 31, uh, verse 32, I should say, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then he preaches a sermon, goes for several verses. I don't think we have the full text of it, but we have a good summation brought to us by Dr. Luke. The people hearing it respond, they're cut to the heart, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter is very specific. Um, what does it mean to call on the Lord? Well, you, there needs to be faith and repentance and baptism. Right, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's the connection between the name of the Lord and the name of Jesus Christ immediately. We see that from 21 to 38. And the connection to baptism is further strengthened when we consider that Ananias... In Acts 22 and verse 16, we are told that he told Saul of Tarsus, who would go on to become Paul, the apostle, Ananias told Saul of Tarsus to rise, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. And so under the New Testament, the new covenant, under the the, the new era of Messiah, that's what it looks like to pledge our allegiance uh, to King Jesus is faith, repentance, and baptism. Uh, What do you say, Alex? I think that's simple. I think
1: it's easy. (laughs) And I think it's truthful. I think maybe where people get hung up today is uh, seeing baptism as a work, a work of the flesh, and no one's saved by works. And that's true. But baptism is not a work. It is the work of God in which he cuts away your sin, in which he recreates you, regenerates you, and you are raised up as a new creation. It's his work. And so again, it's, The waters of baptism activated through faith which regenerates you through the Holy Spirit and you are raised up to walk in newness of life it's easy, it's simple it is truthful
0: so the rest are uh, still spinning out on this phrase here everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved Alex, what were they being saved from? that's a good question, you know first if we're going to stick with the context of Acts chapter 2
1: Uh, Peter does say very clearly in verse 40 that they were being saved from a crooked and perverse generation. And that was the characterization of all the Jews who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And it was quite a few. That judgment, it came in 70 AD when the Romans burned Jerusalem and the temple to the ground. By the way, history tells us that there were no Christians in Jerusalem when the temple was burned down to the ground. When Mm -hmm. that happened... They had already listened to Jesus' words about getting out of town as soon as they see the desolation of armies. They saw it, they got out, and there were no Christians killed in the destruction of Jerusalem. So that's the first thing. They were being saved from a crooked and perverse generation. Second, they were being saved from the second death, otherwise uh, known as the judgment of God that would remain upon them, that would be their State of of being in the resurrection? Are you going to be raised to life to be judged because the judgment of God remains upon you? Or will you have passed out of judgment into life? That's what they were being saved from. Any thoughts, Nick? Uh, No. Well, we're going to get to this last verse here, um, the last part of the last verse, second half. And this is a big one. This is a big one, so strap in. So the second half of verse 32, Joel 32b, we'll call it. It is different in the Septuagint from the Masoretic text. It's significantly different. So, Nick, how does it differ, and does it change the interpretation?
0: Yeah, so it might be beneficial. Let's put this in front of the audience here. Um, I'll read the typical English translation. My English Standard Version is going to stand in for that, of what it sounds like, translated from the Masoretic text, the Hebrew. And then how about you read um, from the Septuagint, what that sounds like from the Greek, okay? Sure. So uh, the end of verse 32, again, typical English translation says, For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Okay. In the Septuagint, it says,
1: Because in the mountain of Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be one who is being rescued, as the Lord has said, and those proclaiming good news, whom the Lord
0: has summoned. So, you can no doubt hear the difference here. The difference between a group those who escape versus one who is rescued and then survivors that the lord calls versus those proclaiming good news um very substantial differences so if we're working from the hebrew what i see here is we have a remnant which is being delivered being saved they're the ones those who are escaping right um now, what tends to happen here is our premillennial dispensational friends, they get a hold of this text and they explain that Joel's prophecy has been suspended. Uh, Chisholm uh has written his handbook on the prophets, and that's his take on it. Problem with that, of course, is Peter on Pentecost pretty soundly answers that it was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. So that's not gonna work. So What do we have here? Well, I have a few options that I've just noodled through, as it were. And so option A, we'll call it, is that uh, the end of uh, Joel 2 points to God's salvation, his deliverance of a remnant through the exile. That There would be a small group who come through the exile and end up called out of the exile back to the land. And that historically happened. Uh, Other prophets, they predicted it as well. That's a an option, a possibility. Option B is that salvation, deliverance from sin, would go forth from Zion, uh, even from Jerusalem. And now we're starting to bleed into Acts two territory, and there would be a remnant that would be called by the Lord under a new covenant. And again, that's precisely what Amos envisioned in his prophecy in Amos 9, verses 11 and 12, which, by the way, is quoted by James at the Jerusalem conference in Acts chapter 15, verses 15 through 17. And James says, that's what's happening. God is saving a remnant. And it seems to be also what Paul alludes to in Romans, especially 11 and verse 5, where he talks about a remnant of Israel that is chosen by grace but they're also chosen along with some Gentiles. So that's option B, another option. Option C is the Hebrew text has been compromised. The Septuagint is better. And so we'll actually talk about this more in the next question, but uh, for what it sounds like, what it looks like, for a possible explanation. But that's another option, option C. um, The Hebrew text isn't to be followed. Instead, we should rely more on the Septuagint. So... Those are a few options, Alex. What say you? I give ten thousand votes to option C. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that's right. It's just going to make so much more sense, and it's going to make what Peter says uh, for the rest of his speech on Pentecost a thousand times more powerful. I just we got it. We got to go. We got to see what it says <laughs> next. Yeah, <laughs> All right. right. So the question then is whether you're going off of the Masoretic text or the Septuagint, Peter doesn't finish quoting Joel 32. Did he know Joel 32? Yes. Did his audience know Joel 32? Yes. But he doesn't finish it. So why? Why does Peter not finish quoting Joel 2.32
0: when we get to Acts 2.21? So I'm going to make the case that he probably did. Um, In one instance, assuming Luke kind of uh, records the highlights of the sermon as it were gives us a summation doesn't quote the whole sermon doesn't record the whole sermon uh, he probably did it's just not recorded for us uh, they are here's what's interesting though all right and and here's so here's the fulfillment even if he doesn't let's say he just stops his quotation short there everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and then launches into a sermon first they are on mount zion They're in Jerusalem. There has been one who has been rescued. That's Jesus. He was not abandoned to Hades. That's part of the sermon, verse 31. You have those proclaiming good news, the gospel. And then you have a re emphasis on the initial audience, the Jews, you and your children. But also you have. The universal aspect, as we come to verse 39, promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, everyone, and get this, everyone whom the Lord our God will call. And what may not stand out to us uh, with our English translations is that the word here for call or calls in Acts 2.39 comes from the same root for calls in Joel Three thirty-two, two thirty-two. Excuse me, Joel. Th- uh, two thirty-two. That's right. So it may be that Peter does reference the rest of Joel two thirty-two when he makes this appeal to his audience to obey the gospel. Uh, you say? <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. Exactly.
1: <laughs> if we go with the Septuagint, then Joel two thirty-two b isn't quoted by Peter on purpose (laughs) because it's (laughs) preached. It's exposited instead. The audience knows the rest of the verse. Peter knows the rest of the verse, but he preaches on that one who is saved as he and the others, the apostles who've just been given the Holy Spirit, when tongues of fire landed on them as they preach, proclaiming good news, just as the Lord has summoned them to do. (laughs) It's a brilliant move. It really is. I mean, no wonder the people were so struck to the heart. That is a top-notch inductive sermon. Listen, everyone listening to this podcast right now, my whole neighborhood listening as I scream, (laughs) everyone should be reading the Septuagint. I'm serious about that. This is a big deal. This makes a big difference. And though there's no salvation differences, right, whether you're going off of the Masoretic Text or Septuagint, it is a big deal when these Septuagint verses unleash all this power now into what was really being said when the New
0: Testament writers quote the Old Testament. This this is a big deal. And and one thing that occurs to me is it really does undo the dispensationalist case for the completely Absolutely. Yep. It Roasted.
1: Boom. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, you know what I think this means, Nick? I think that, okay, you know, next we got to finish chapter three. So next week we'll Mm -hmm. finish chapter three. Uh, That'll be episode 50, by the way. So that's exciting. 50 episodes. And I think what we should do after that, whenever we record episode 51, I think we should do an episode about Bible study tools. Let's talk to the audience about what are the tools, what are the resources that we are using when we do our bible study you know not just are we using paper or are we using uh, bible software but but beyond that what are the actual resources we're using and so cuz we reference a lot of things in here we reference the pseudepigrapha the apocrypha the writings of josephus and philo uh, the septuagint um, we we reference things like manuscripts and um and original language and that kind of thing i think we should take a moment to just Talk to our audience about things that they could also implement into their Bible study that would uh, help them to, to to see the same things that that we're seeing and how we're getting what we're getting when we come to the podcast each week. What do you think?
0: That's a, that's a <clears throat> I think it's a good idea. And uh, <clears throat> you know what's what's phenomenal to me, and we'll, we can talk about it more when we get to that episode. Is the you don't have to spend a lot of money to get this stuff. Um, I'm always impressed by what I find at the Salvation Army, the Goodwill thrift stores, right? Your local and your local used bookstores. It's phenomenal the stuff that's just sitting on the shelves that's not going to use that you can purchase for pennies on the dollar for what you'd pay for it brand new. So, <clears throat> absolutely. We'll talk about it more in a couple episodes. I think that brings us to our one minute sermon. Yeah, it sure does. <clears throat> and so you go first, right? Right, right. This is, of course, the segment. Alex and I were both preachers. We have a heart for preachers. We want to give you a good start, a good head start on your sermon for Sunday. So, what we do is we uh, have each selected a song title, any genre of music, a song title. Uh, Alex doesn't know what I've selected for him. He hasn't told me what he has for me. And so we're just going to make up right on the spot a one-minute sermon um, off of this song title. Uh, text and, again, the a good, a good start for a sermon. One minute on the clock, Alex. All right, here we go. <clears throat> the song I have selected for you, it comes from 1981 off of one of van halen's albums (laughs) the title is unchained unchained change nothing stays the same unchained and i hit the ground running change right so unchained as in like a chained link like unchained yeah Yeah, you're you're unchained okay all right one minute on the clock you have your song title and go. You know, uh, a
1: lot of people look at the rules or the uh, standards of living in which the Christian and the people of God live by, and they see that as restrictive. They see that as being um, chained up and bound by all these things that prevent them from having a good time, from enjoying this life. You got one life, you only YOLO, you only live once, and so eat, drink, and be merry. And yet, we know as Christians, both through the word and through experience, that it is really the eternal truth of what is right and wrong, by which we can live by, that unchains us from the slavery that we uh, are enslaved by through sin. And so it is knowing when to act and when not to act, knowing what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God through the transformation of our mind, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that transformation that lets us live in true freedom freed for freedom's sake Galatians 5 there we go (laughs) go. (laughs) getting it in under the buzzer there we go (laughs) unchained I almost went with uh, Satan being bound for a thousand years but (laughs) Uh, yeah there you go I was like no no I can't do it in a minute (laughs) (laughs) that'd be a good one it would be All right. good choice Nick good choice Mm-hmm. did my best. Nick, it's time for you to do your best. One right. minute sermon on a song that um, you know who who wrote it, who sang it and you know the name of the song all I have to do is say hey, Annie, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? Said, Annie, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? You've been hit by, you've been struck by a smooth criminal <laughs> but it <laughs> Michael Jackson, smooth criminal one minute sermon go Nick
0: you know there was a uh, there was a time when jesus he was hanging on the cross this is in luke twenty three and as he's hanging there he's between two criminals, and the one criminal is hurling insults at him, but the other criminal He has a change of heart. He says, We are here justly. This is justice that's happened to them. This man, he is suffering unjustly. Won't you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, To this day you will be with me in paradise. You see, one of those criminals, he he was brutish. He was unrepentant. But there was another who was smoother than the other. He made his way into the kingdom, and it was because of Jesus. Jesus forgave him there on the cross. Time. My time's up.
1: Well done. Yay. Mm -hmm. Smooth criminal. (laughs) That was good. I was impressed. I did not think you were going to go that direction. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking you would preach uh, something about Satan being the smooth criminal.
0: Mm, that's a good one too. Yeah. I, I, my thought originally went to Paul, Saul, but then I was like, "Well, yeah. criminal, criminal." Ah, here we go. Yeah. Within the,
1: uh, what would it be? Jesus being the strong man,
0: binding up the smooth criminal. There you go. We're both thinking about Satan today. There you go. <laughs> um, hey, one minute sermon, a fun party game. <laughs> <laughs> Get you and your Christian friends together. <clears throat> now that—that's some cheese whiz right there. Hey, you know what isn't cheese whiz is our archives. You can find them on the internet. You can find them in the Google Play Music Store. You can find them in the iTunes Store. Go into your respective uh, online digital music store and search Swordplay. And you'll find all the archives there. You can download them to your device, take them with you wherever you go. Listen at your convenience. Uh, All there, all available, all free uh, for you to use in your uh, Bible study. That's right. We value your
1: feedback. So leave a review on iTunes or uh, through your podcast app. Um, Also send us questions at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts, answer your questions. Um, We want you to join in on the conversation. We appreciate you joining us today for this um, very, very fun yet challenging section here in Joel chapter 2. And we will see you next week for chapter 3 on another episode of Swordplay.